If you would turn with me to the end of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. The title of today's message is Paul's Final Words. And um, I didn't plan this. Um, God in his providence has us in the final passage of Ephesians today where Paul closes his letters. That's the title, Paul's Final Words. So right at the end of the book, let's read the final few verses. Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus, verse 21, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers with love and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love is incorruptible. It can't be contaminated. It's unbreakable, and it's at work among your people. Let it be at work among us today as we read this text of Scripture and as we uh, celebrate and also grieve and say goodbye on this final day that we're here. But rejoice as we get the big picture of what you're doing as we sit with Christ in heavenly places. Lord, that this whole thing will culminate with the glory of God in the nations of the world. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in the speaking and the hearing today. In Jesus' name, amen. So these are Paul's final words in the book of Ephesians, which closes our series. But these aren't the only place where some of Paul's final words to the Ephesians are found. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul headed toward Jerusalem, where he'd be arrested eventually and executed in Rome eventually, Paul stops in Miletus near Ephesus and calls for the elders of Ephesus. And what he shares with them is recorded. So I want you to listen to what he said to the elders in his final meeting with them. And think about it. Like, he gets one, sh- one more shot here to say something. So whatever he says is probably going to be really important. Here's what he says. Acts 20, verses 17 through 32. I'm going to read a good chunk here, but I think you'll, you'll find it encouraging. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I'm going to go down to verse 36 now. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, I, don't, I don't need too many kisses today. Um, I mean, Jesse's available. If... Actually, I got, I got a holy kiss from Louis that w- last week. That warmed my heart. So there's three things here. Um, Paul affirms the gospel. Paul affirms people. And then Paul blesses them. Let's look at this idea of Paul affirming the gospel. You know, how would you summarize Paul's greatest concern in his final comments to the elders of Ephesus? It seems to me that his deepest concern surrounds the preservation and purity of the message of the gospel. Because he knows what we know. And that is that you can lose your eye or lose your arm and you'll live. But if you lose your heart, you die. And the heart of the New Testament church, the heart of Grace Life Church, the heart of believers in Jesus Christ is the gospel. And, you know, we could, Paul could have said other things, right? He could have said, hey, guys, it's really important that you keep praying. Prayer is very important, but he didn't say that. He didn't say, uh, it's really important that you gather and, and keep having meals together and fellowshipping because relationships, the future of the success of this church is your relationships. Important, but he doesn't say that. He talks about the gospel. There seems to be some concern, maybe even anxiety about what might happen after he leaves. And he wants to give one final word about the preservation and the purity of the message because that is the heart of the church. That's the engine of the New Testament church. This week, a dear friend of Heidi's and mine, a childhood friend, uh, had his leg amputated. It's, it was just, I don't know, it's heavy, you know? Man, he's losing a part of his body. And uh, you'd have to know this guy in his sense of humor to understand that while, while it was very tragic, he still spent most of the week joking around with his family and friends about how he's going on this diet plan. He's going to lose a bunch of weight this week. And the reason he can joke around is because he knows he's going to survive. He's going to be okay. Why? Because he's not losing his heart. And here Paul is talking about the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the church. Look how often Paul refers to his own gospel preaching in this text, just to go back and highlight just a few few phrases and a few things he says. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. You go down to verse 24. He says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And then he goes on in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. 
For I did not shrink from declaring to you, declaring, testifying, proclaiming. It's all about his message. It's all about the gospel. And did you hear what he called his gospel? He called the gospel, the way he summarized it, was the gospel of the grace of God. Now, in the West, we're famous for just calling it the Word, right? And, that, and that's fine, right? Are you in the Word? Are you studying the Word? Are, you have good disciplines in the Word. We need to go to church so we can hear the Word. And that's good and fine. But the phrase Paul used to summarize his message was the gospel of the grace of God. This tells us that grace is not just a series. You know what I mean? Oh, we, uh, we need to make sure we hit grace because you know, that seems to be a big part of the New Testament So let's do a series on that next August. That's not how Paul thought about it. Grace was everything. He summarized the gospel by calling it the gospel of the grace of God. As Tim Keller said, the gospel is not the ABCs of our faith. It's the A to Z. It's not just the foundation. It's the walls and it's the roof. It's everything. We also see in this text of scripture that Paul seems to have some anxiety or fear around the gospel and its future among the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Whenever Paul used that phrase wolves, he was speaking of false teachers. Those who would come in, in a sense, devour the faith of people and devour Christians and, and destroy them. He says, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's a sobering warning. He says, therefore, be alert. And I commend you to God. And he says it again. And the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I had some, uh, a few pretty poor nights of sleep this week. Um. You know, what do you do when you, you know, when you're laying there and you're like, oh, I ain't going to go back to sleep. So you go, well, let me try to do something productive. So I don't know how I ended up here, but um, I was wondering if, uh, if, if Barnabas had ever written an epistle. And uh, I knew Polycarp did. Polycarp was a disciple of John's, uh, Christ's disciple. And Polycarp's epistle, it's not part of the canon of scripture, but it's still beautiful. Uh, it's a writing of one of you know, our early church fathers. Polycarp ended up being executed by the Romans for his faith. Beautiful story. don't have time to tell it. But, um, but I thought, oh, I wonder if you know, Barnabas is so frequently mentioned. I wonder if Barnabas had written an epistle. And I don't know why I, I, or how I'd never stumbled upon this. But Barnabas did write an epistle. And you know, Barnabas is mentioned throughout the book of Acts. He's known as the son of encouragement. He was taught directly the gospel by the disciples. And um, again, it's not scripture. But as I read the letter in the middle of the night the other night, it was like, man, this is so cool. I get to like sit under a sermon from Barnabas. How cool is that? So it was like listening to a sermon from an early church father. And one of the things I found in Barnabas' writings was that he was equally as concerned as Paul was. And remember, they spent time together in Antioch. He was equally as concerned about the gospel and about the churches, in particular, the church's handling of the law. Because remember, the false teaching that had come into many of the churches was that to be truly saved, you need to bring yourself under the law of Moses as a means of acceptance before God. In other words, keep God's law perfectly, or at least the best you can, and that will be what brings you close to God. That will be what gives you acceptance. That will be what gives you salvation. And Barnabas was just as concerned as Paul was about this. 
because he knew what Paul knew and what we know, and that is no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, the law points to Christ and shows us the way of grace. And so in Barnabas 3.6, he says this, To this end, therefore, my brethren, he that is long-suffering, foreseeing that the people whom he had prepared and his well-beloved would believe in simplicity, manifested to us beforehand concerning all these things, that we might not, as novices, shipwreck ourselves upon their law. This is an amazing thing he's saying here. He's, in the context of it is he's talking about how God foretold of the gospel of grace in the Old Testament. And he would do that by showing how we had fallen short of the law and how Israel had fallen short of the law and how through his prophets he foretold of one who would come and take our sins for us. And he says, he's basically saying, we need to understand that, that the gospel even appears in the Old Testament because if we don't, then we'll only look to the Old Covenant and the law of God as something that we'll try to use to fix ourselves instead of pointing to Christ. And he says, and in doing that, we'll shipwreck ourselves upon their law. People who do not rightly divide law and gospel can, in Barnabas' words, shipwreck themselves upon the law. Now, how does that happen? I think Paul elaborates on this in Galatians 5 when he's dealing directly with this issue as the false teachers were teaching precisely this that we're saved by faith in Jesus plus circumcision, plus obedience to the law of Moses. And Paul says this, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, Paul's not saying you can't be circumcised or you're not a Christian. What what he's saying is don't be circumcised for the reasons they're telling you to be circumcised. So parents who circumcise your kids don't feel like you made a big mistake and, you know. (laughs) somehow left your kids out of the covenant. He's, he's talking about the, the, the motive that, he, that these false teachers were telling the believers in Galatia to be circumcised. He says, if you do that, if you listen to these clowns, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen from grace. So two tragic things happen when we shipwreck ourselves upon the law. Number one, the standard by which we think God accepts us shifts from Christ's work to our work. You know, Paul said you can seek God's approval and acceptance in that way. The problem is the standard of acceptance shifts from Christ's finished work on the cross and your faith in that, and it shifts to your work and your obedience to the law. And oh, by the way, you've got to keep the whole law and you've got to keep it perfectly. Well, who then can be saved? Obviously, there's there's nothing down there for you. There's nothing down there but two things, condemnation or judgmentalism. Those are the only places you can land. If you shift from grace to works as the means by which God accepts you, then you'll either end up condemned because you'll know at some point that I can't do this. I can't keep, I can't keep God's law. I can't, I can't, I can't make myself or justify myself and do enough good works to balance the scales. Or you'll become judgmental and deceive yourself into thinking, I've actually done pretty good and I'm definitely, definitely done better than most people. And you become judgmental. So you either become the beggars and sinners that the Pharisees hated or you become a Pharisee. That's your only two options. People who think they're better than others and pe- who, because they attain the law, 
They've deceived themselves. Or people who feel crushed by the law. Grace says, God knows my record. He sees my debt. And he showed me mercy and love anyway. Not because of my merits and my record, but in spite of my merits or lack thereof and my record. There was a young Russian officer that was embezzling money from his troops. He knew he was going to be found out, so he decided to commit suicide. And he went into his room, his office, and he got himself drunk. But he got himself too drunk, and he passed out. And when he passed out, he'd had the books open that showed his embezzlement. They're laying right in open view, right there on his desk. And he's, there he is, passed out on his desk. And the, the czar himself, his overseer, came in and saw the officer slumped over the books and he realized what had happened. And he left a note and put a seal on it. And it said, I will make good the debt. And the young man came to his senses. He woke up in the morning and he saw the note. And that's when he realized, the czar, my, my judge, my, my, my accuser, has looked into the books and has seen my heart and has seen my sin to the bottom. And he's decided to redeem me anyway. He's decided to show me mercy. The real gospel says he knows my sin to the bottom and he loves me to the top. As we've said a thousand times, and I guess I should say it one more time here on our final Sunday here, I'm more wicked than I ever dared believe. I'm more loved than I ever dared hope. At the very same time, that's the gospel. That our trust is in grace. Our hope is in grace. And we don't shipwreck ourselves upon their law. The second way that we shipwreck ourselves upon the law, according to Paul in Galatians, is the power source, when we trust in our works, and we trust in our merits and the law, the power source shifts from the Holy Spirit to me. You know, you might compare real Christianity and false religion to a rowboat versus a sailboat. I think legalism is the person at the oars, straining at the oars, trying to get across the, the sea. And eventually, inevitably, our arms run out of strength. But Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. So he likened the Holy Spirit's work in a person's heart to wind. Well, when I was young, my dad had a sailboat. And he'd put the sail up. I didn't see him rowing at all. He would just put the sail up and the wind would come. And the power that moved the vessel wasn't his arms or his strength. The power was the wind. That's the Christian. Christianity is a sailboat, not a rowboat. It's the strength of the Holy Spirit, not the strength of ourselves. But Paul's saying, if you seek righteousness in your own works, if you, if you shipwreck yourself upon the law, the standard shifts from Christ's work to your work, and the, and the strength source shifts from Christ's strength in the Holy Spirit to your strength. For a while, I was um, fascinated with these air crash disaster episodes. Have you seen any of those? Um, I think some are just called air crash disaster. There's like three or four versions of that on... Um, National Geographic Channel and Discovery Channel. And I was just fascinated by a lot of these stories. And, and the, uh, the NTSB uh, investigation and what they discovered about how these planes crashed. And there was one story that stuck with me. And I just saw the gospel in it. In 1994, there was an Aeroflot plane, uh, a new Aeroflot plane, that, that Russia had purchased a fleet of them. 
And uh, on its maiden voyage, they were flying from Russia to Siberia. And the chief pilot let his 12-year-old daughter and 16-year-old son come into the cockpit. Once they got to cruising altitude and it was on autopilot, he brought them into the cockpit and he let each of them have their, their hand at the controls, at the, at the stick. And it was on autopilot, so no one, nobody was concerned. But what they didn't know, as the plane had technology that was new to the crew and the NTSB found out that they weren't trained properly, was that holding the stick in one direction for a certain amount of time would actually disengage the autopilot. And when his 16-year-old son was at the controls, they could hear it on the cockpit voice recorder. That's exactly what happened. He brought it out of autopilot, and the plane began to spiral out of control, and the pilots got back in their seats and tried to regain control of the plane. They couldn't, and it dropped 30,000 feet out of the sky, crashed into the ground, killing 75 people. Now, what the NTSB investigation discovered afterward is that the plane had new technology that if the pilots had simply let go of the controls, the plane would have righted itself in seconds. Seconds. So the thing that caused the disaster was not only uh, this 16-year-old boy turning the, the controller a certain direction and disengaging the autopilot. It was the fact that these men had tried to gain control of the plane when this, the plane had a safety feature that would have righted itself if they would simply have let go and it would have saved everybody. And that's the gospel. You have a safety feature built into your salvation that says when you let go of your strength and when you let go of control and you say, God, you are in control. I surrender to you and I surrender to your wind and I surrender to your love. You have a safety feature built into your salvation that Jesus rescues us. He saves us from sin and its power. Because Paul loved God's people and saw himself as a spiritual father, here in Ephesians 6 and in Acts chapter 20, he sought to protect the one thing that would protect their heart and keep them from shipwrecking themselves upon God's law, the gospel. And this also tells us that the best way to love people is the gospel. Yeah, we need to do acts of service and acts of love, and those are all wonderful, and those are all expressions of the gospel. But one of the best ways to love people, if we're looking at what Paul said to the believers in Ephesus in his final words for them, if, if it was everything was about the gospel, that meant his heartbeat, the deepest desire of his heart, the deepest way his heart could express love was to love them with the gospel. And over the 11 years we've been here, almost 12 now, some of us misunderstood our focus on the gospel of grace, assuming that grace is a beginner class or an unnecessary reminder, or it's just the milk of the word. But to see it that way is to err. The gospel, the message that we are deficient and helpless without grace, and that Jesus rescued us on the cross from all sin, weakness, pain, and brokenness, is the engine of our faith. We cannot enter the conversation of growing in God or sanctification without first standing back up daily on the foundation of our justification. In other words, you can't be sanctified without being justified. And you can't, your sanctification comes from your justification. The only way we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit and motivated by faith alone is to remember the finished work of Christ 
And then he purifies our hearts, he empowers us, he purifies our motives, and we go out and do good works. We talk about all things here, including good works, repentance from sin, personal holiness. But in each one of those topics, we always look back at the one who became like us so that we could become like him. Christless Christianity is the plague of the Western church. The scriptures don't tolerate it, and we don't tolerate it. If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, then if we lose the gospel, we lose the power. And we become like Paul said. We have a form of godliness, but we have no power. We deny its power. Now, over the last month, we've had several elder assessments where we asked the potential elders, what is gospel centrality? Here's how they answered. Randy's answer was, gospel centrality means that we never lose sight of being accepted by grace through faith and that all that we need is not in ourselves, but it's found in Christ. Nate Carey answered the question, gospel centrality means we draw a line back to the gospel in every subject. We ask the question, how does this scripture text point us to Christ? Now, these quotes were not by Charles Spurgeon and D.A. Carson. That was Randy Arnold and Nate Carey. The gospel is important to us. It was important to Paul, so important that it was the topic of his final word to the believers and the elders of Ephesus. Secondly, Paul affirms people in this text. He says, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. We often see Paul doing this in his letters, publicly affirming a person, in a way that would build them up. He he would esteem them in Christ. It would build them up and give them confidence, but it would also give the body confidence that these were godly people that could be trusted. In Philippians 2, he did the same thing in verses 19 and 20. As the churches were getting to know this true son of the faith that he had, Timothy. And he wrote, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful affirmation from an apostle about this younger man, Timothy. So today, in my final message here at Grace Life, not my, you know, it's not like I'll never preach here again, but my final message as the lead pastor here, I'd like to take a moment and do the same. I'd like to affirm people, affirm some people. In my family, we call this evidences of grace. We sometimes take a moment where we gather and we encourage everyone to describe where you see evidences of grace in a sibling or in someone else in the family. Sometimes we've done it with friends or extended family. And they'll say, where I see grace at work in my cousin is this, or where I see grace at work in in you or in in your family is, is in this way. And I want to do that publicly. I want to talk about Caleb. Caleb's parents named him well. He has been to me a true Caleb, like the great man in the Old Testament, coming alongside and joining me on this journey of faith. And he has been a Caleb to this church since the day he came, coming alongside as a friend of this church to seek our best. His meekness might be interpreted by some as weakness, but meekness, which Christ commanded in the Beatitudes, all believers should pursue, meekness is not weakness. It's power under restraint. The man I know is strong and courageous 
and a clear voice for the gospel. I have personally watched him lead others, manage crisis situations with grace and wisdom, and serve in the most menial tasks week after week and without applause, including every Friday morning cleaning the men's urinals and toilets. I've seen him wrestle with texts of scripture and grow in his teaching ministry. He's also been a dear friend to me and to my family, especially Reese. I can say without exaggeration that outside of my wife, he's the best partner in ministry that I've ever had. And I thank you for that, brother. I trust him and I'm confident in the grace of God at work in him to serve you. I'm also grateful for his wife, Chanel, a steady, zealous, humble and hard worker for her family and for the gospel. Her gifts have yet to fully blossom here, but I'm confident that they will in the church and the not yet Christian community that she's constantly pursuing will be blessed because of her. Mike Tucker. Mike is a gentle giant who leads in love. Since the day he and Nancy arrived from California, he has never sought a position, but is led through being a doer and through the trust he's built up within the body. He's a mature brother you can lean on, actually physically lean on, and he can hold you up, and you can listen to him. Because he'll always point you to Christ and his word. I commend him to you as a strong and tender shepherd who will both heal wounds and fight off bears. He has an unusual joy in all things teaching from the study and discussions surrounding the gospel to sharing the word in multiple contexts. This church family has and will benefit from his teaching gift. He's also helped in the development of our deacon ministry. And I commend his wife Nancy to you as a true mother of Israel, a lover of people who might be the female version of Barnabas, a daughter of encouragement. Because that's how she's affected me. I always feel encouraged when I'm with Nancy Tucker. These are two pillars that the Lord Jesus puts weight on as His grace has made them strong in faith and love. Jesse Tightsworth. Jesse stood by my side when no one else would. In the wilderness of 2013, when a faction left the church, he was faithful and helped hold the church together. He's always told me the truth when he thought it would help me or the church, even if I didn't want to hear it. He has a wisdom gift that helps me see things that I might not have otherwise seen. He has, he has served the church selflessly with nothing in it for him except the good of God's people and the glory of God. I commend him to you as a servant of the church and a strength to the church. His teaching gift and financial insight will continue to be a guiding asset to the body. His wife Kelly is an example to all of us of a godly woman, a devoted mother, and a lover of God's word. The Tightsworth family is a beautiful picture of a godly home that we can all esteem and imitate. And that's one of the reasons in 1 Timothy 3 that it said he must be able to manage his household well. Because when the body goes, and a young couple goes, what does a godly family look like? We need to have an example in the eldership. And we do in the Tightsworth family, and for that I'm grateful. And for the grace of God at work in you and your family, brother. Thank you. Nate Carey.
I've said before that in Nate, we have an unusual rare gift among us. His musical talent, combined with his gospel clarity, has made his ministry a well of refreshment for us and anyone who comes here. As we consider, as we consider his teaching role as an elder, he and we have embraced the reality that the worship ministry is part of our teaching ministry. Week after week, his gospel stewardship in the ministry is evident. He has modeled for us what is expressed in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I commend him to you as a creative minister of the gospel and a shepherd of God's people. Thank you, brother. Randy Arnold. Randy reminds me of someone you might describe as having the character of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is gentle, quiet, seemingly behind the curtain, but always pointing to Jesus, singularly focused on exalting Christ and his word. And this is Randy. He's a steady friend to me and the other leaders and to the church, always pointing us to scriptural integrity and true love for the body. He's shown an incredible calm in all situations and modeled speaking the truth in love. If a true friend is someone that has a vision for your spiritual success, and formation, then Randy is our best friend. He's a true friend to all of us. His teaching gift is also excellent and a great benefit in small groups and services. And he's also no novice in life or being a churchman. His wisdom gift has also helped many on many occasions, and he works so well in team ministry that his presence causes the rest of the team's effectiveness to increase. He's a true servant leader, and I commend him to you as an elder among us. His wife, Lisa, is a well of so many blessings for the body. She may not see it at times, but anyone who knows her has encountered her wisdom, encouragement, scriptural insights, and a quiet passion for the advancement of God's kingdom in the home, the church, and in society. The Arnolds are a gift to this body of believers, and I urge you to receive them as such. Mike Conklin. I don't think we've said it publicly, but Mike has just been welcomed on as an elder in process and attended his first meeting a few weeks ago. You might call Mike an elder of love as he consistently values people, invests in people, and shows deep concern for their well-being in life and in Christ. He has served our men for years in Man Cave and in putting together the men's retreat, and anyone who's participated in either of these has been blessed by them. His wife, Pam, is busy in God's work and has been a blessing to our women. I commend them to you as builders of God's people and seasoned members of God's household. They have seen the fire and have endured. And now they have a rich testimony of God's faithfulness to minister to others in this community of believers. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Paul told Timothy, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful or reliable men who will be able to teach others also. And I, can't, I cannot imagine a, more, a group of more reliable men than the elders here and the elders in process at Grace Life that I'm leaving behind. And I'm grateful for that and the grace of God that's at work among them and therefore among you. Christina Kranz. I don't think Christina's here today. Maybe she's watching via live stream. If she was here... I would say to her, 
The grace of God at work in you is profound and from another world. Believer and unbeliever have seen this and glorified God for it. Your faith in the midst of your pain gives courage to everyone. Your service in the midst of your pain inspires everyone. Your testimony and faith in the midst of your pain encourages everyone. I'm grateful that you are ministering to the women of this church. You're a gift to the body. I commend Christina to you. As Paul told Timothy, let no one look down on her or you, if you're listening, Christina, because you're young or in your case, single, but continue to set an example as you have for the believers in life, in love and speech and in purity. I commend this sister to you in the grace of God. To the deacons, all those serving in deacon ministry, Ron, Christina, Suzanne Lee, Scott Muir, you're the hands and feet of Jesus reaching out, and I'm grateful for the love you're modeling to the body. There's so many more I could mention, but I don't have time to speak about everyone. Those who have served here, past or presently, Julie Brancato, Tammy Brown, Bridget Paddock, my mother Adrian, Keith Parks, Ken and Leslie Trezice, Steve Golem, Ken and Kathy Carey, Tom McCardle, Nicole Jones, Robin Denice, Dan and Elise Durkee, Brenda Muir, Marlena, Brenda Tuttle, the worship band, and so many others. You have blessed God's people through your service. And to everyone else, your faith, your love, your hospitality, your service and, and kindness have been a joy to me. And I'm grateful for you all and the grace of God at work in you. And finally, to my wife and children, young and old. Thank you for following me on this journey and trusting me as I follow Christ and lead this family. Heidi, I thank you for all the sacrifices, for being my best friend, and for pointing my heart to healing in Christ when I've been wounded, and for working so hard at home to serve our family and release me to do what I do. I love you more than words can say. Grace, joy, Esther, Reese, Audrey, and Jack, thank you for learning how to follow Jesus with me, for forgiving me when I failed, for having mercy on me when the pain or pressure became so great that I turned my emotions on you, for continually, continually leaning into Christ, his word, and his people. You've made a hard job less hard because of the grace of God at work in you, and I love you all from the bottom of my heart. And finally, in this text, Paul blesses them. He finishes Ephesians by saying, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And the last thing he says in Acts is, And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And I want to finish by blessing you. May the love of Jesus be real among you, the Holy Spirit reminding your hearts every day that your sins are forgiven in Christ, that you are in Him, that you are united with Him, and that you are the sons and daughters of God. May the grace of God be rich among you, giving you confidence in your salvation, contentment in your circumstances, security in your future, and clarity in your ministry. May the Holy Spirit be active among you, crying, Abba, Father, in your hearts, forming you into the image of Christ, guiding you into all truth, teaching you how to bear one another's burdens, pointing you to Jesus, gifting you to be his witnesses, giving you courage to proclaim his name among the nations. May the word of God guide you. May it give you wisdom and light. May it be living and active. And may it be that bread of life of which our Savior said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And may the memory of this season that we've had together always remind you of what I've taught. That, quote, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. That Jesus was crucified in accordance with the scriptures. And may you pray for my family and for me as I will pray for you. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the, of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.